This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's expert panel, returning to the Roundup is Theron Johnson. Theron is a political strategist and consultant who's worked for Atlanta Mayor's Keisha Lance Bottoms and Kasim Reed, Congressman John Lewis, and President Barack Obama. He's also rumored to be running for mayor of Atlanta. How you doing, Theron? Doing very good, Ron. <laughs> it's actually good to be with you uh, in person. And thank you for, uh, for giving me an opportunity to address that. Um, I made a decision not to run for mayor. I want to focus on my family and my wife wants to expand her career in dermatology. And so we're going to focus on that. But uh, it's not never. It's just not now. Well, politicology wins then. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you for being here in person. This is actually really exciting. Also here in person, returning to politicology and making her weekly roundup debut is Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of a newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. It's good to be in person for the it's first really time great, in a long right? time. This is the second <laughs> roundup in a row where we're actually fully in person. It's great. Uh, uh, blessed be vaccinations. <laughs> On this week's roundup, President Biden's first meeting with Putin, the KGB's latest provocations and the future of NATO, the insurrectionist now running for Congress, and finally, the lengths to which Trump's Department of Justice went to uncover leakers and the office now tasked with cleaning up their mess. Also, for our Politicology Plus community, we'll be looking at the rhetorical dynamics, particularly the framing on the right of the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origins. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to Politicology Plus right now by going to politicology.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's get started. On Wednesday, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin met in Geneva. And while they found some agreement when it came to returning their respective ambassadors to their posts and restarting talks about talks about our nuclear treaty, the two didn't see eye to eye on cybersecurity, human rights, nor their respective nations' political disputes. So, Molly, I'm going to pivot right to you (laughs) just to set this up for us. Sure. Um, First of all, can you put the meeting in context for us and then tell us about what your reaction was and whether or not anything surprised you about the summit or the remarks that followed? 
Right. I'll, I'll try to keep it concise. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I didn't think this was the time to do the Putin meeting. I think this should have this trip should have been the re-engage the allies, you know, mm. dispel the bad juju of the last four years. Um, and that that stuff happened. And those meetings were great. And I think the tone was good in terms of NATO and the G7 and EU and stuff that happened in the UK. All of that was good um, in terms of resetting we're back. It's fine. You can call us again. We're not going to kick you in the teeth. That was good. And so I do think that was a good, all of that was a good setup and lead into the Putin meeting. I just think we should have left it off and done mm. it after Putin showed that he deserved it and had done something to earn that respect. But I think the lead into it was good. That made the messaging better. I think it's clear Biden and his team know how to do foreign policy, which we all knew. Um, the substance of that is uh, still up for debate. And you know, um, Russia's hard, right? <laughs> because they, <laughs> as we've discussed, <laughs> they really aren't going to give you anything that you want ever. Um, and every administration comes at this a different way. And I think this administration made it uh, made like went to such painstaking efforts not to use any words that sounded like reset or restart yeah. or fresh chance. But essentially, they went into this meeting the same way, which is, hey. We know you're doing these things yeah. and you shouldn't be doing the things and we're going to give you six months to stop doing the things. And in the meantime, let's talk about all the stuff we can work on together, which is essentially what the reset was. Yeah. And when you give Putin a timeline, you need to get your act together or in six months, something they use the six months. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, that's it. why that's how yeah. the war in Georgia happened in 2008. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I'm worried about this because Biden is... Um, an optimist and in, a, in all the right good ways that we love about his domestic yeah. agenda and how yeah. he's engaging the country. He believes that Putin is not inherently bad and the people around him are not inherently bad and that they should want to work on climate change and save the world and that yeah. maybe they'll work with us on China and all of these other things that just aren't, in my opinion, yeah. um, a good leeway to give him because that's how we get exploited in these negotiations. They know we want this stuff, so they sort of give us crumbs on climate change that aren't ultimately yeah. going to matter. Um, in the meantime, they imprison their political opponents and do stuff in Belarus and do stuff in Ukraine yeah. and do stuff in Georgia and and we don't say enough about it. So good stuff from Biden on human rights, but it was a lot of responding to the stuff that the stuff that, that Biden said that was great yeah. on defending the political prisoners, defending human rights, defending the right of RFERL and other journalists to operate in Russia. All of these things were great points for him to have made and raised with Putin that have been sort of off the agenda for a long time. But all of that's responding to Russians' bad behavior. Yeah. And where's our agenda? Like, what are we right. pushing them on? Right. And so that's my, yeah. I'm not sure that this is so different in terms of the substance on the other side. But at least it was clearer and it wasn't embarrassing when okay, Biden walked out of that meeting. Okay, you know? so, there, so there's a victory. It wasn't embarrassing. It wasn't. <laughs> I want to come back in a second to both the optics and the substance and how optics can be substance in foreign policy. But- Theron, how important is it politically here in the United States for Biden to reaffirm our global commitments and for voters to see a contrast between him and 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 Trump and to stand firmly against Putin, which we'll get back to this in a second. I didn't feel like he really did. How did you interpret that for the U.S. political lens? Well, I think it's why the American people chose Joe Biden to be their president is because six months into his administration, while to Molly's point, it could have been things that could have been more discussed. But I think the administration had three goals. One, to be on the offense, to show that we're not going to tolerate any Russian interference in our elections. I think he made that point very clearly. Two, um, 
as Molly mentioned, to really restore faith and commitment to our allies that we're going to work with you, but also to say, hey, Russia is a threat not only to the U.S., but to a lot of the allies. And then the third thing was to show that, you know what, we can be competent. Uh, Mm -hmm. We can actually have a conversation about world affairs and world issues without being combative. Or in some people in my party thinks that sometimes uh, former President Donald Trump was just too acceptive to oh, things yeah. that, that Putin would say. I mean, he was trying to cozy up with the guy. So you didn't really see that um, with President Biden. And then lastly, Ron, I think the Biden administration team did a really good job of the buildup, right? Mm. They were on air conversations, interviews. The team really amplified that this was a meeting where we wanted to immediately deal with a threat to this country. This man is is, is a threat to the yeah. U.S. Let's go have a conversation with him. And I think that now that that has happened, there's a strategy in place to dig deeper into some of the things that we just heard from Molly as far as, like, okay, now what are we going to hold them accountable for? What are some of the things that we can do in offense? But politically, yeah. Politically, I mean, it was a win. It was, it right? was a win for the administration. Yeah. Okay. I, t- I totally agree with that. The thing I'm hung up on is the, the you know, okay, let's talk about the optics for this yeah. for a second, because I think it'd be helpful. I saw a lot of reporting about the, um, you know, the, how they avoided eye contact, right? Mm-hmm. How uh, they, Biden refused to do a joint press briefing. Um, they He was the first to extend his hand to shake Putin's hand. I want you to talk a little bit about the strategy that goes into those kinds of minute details mm-hmm. when you're talking about a meeting of this scale and the pressure that's on both of those both of those individuals but in particular in Biden yep. who's very good at foreign policy right he's done this a lot he calls Putin a worthy adversary but how important especially especially in an age where we know that all of this just gets chopped up into little bite-sized pieces and spread <laughs> across social media right that's how people consume this they didn't watch it live on TV they're consuming it just like they do presidential debates in little pieces and what they're going to see are you know TikToks of a handshake or avoiding eye contact and yeah. so can you talk a little bit about how much more important that might be now than it has been in the past and the and the type of foreign policy that Biden's used to yeah it's you know it's <sighs> It, it, it started in the past. Uh, it certainly was happening during the Trump administration. It sort of, I think, hit peak and is not going to go away at this point. But the way in which these foreign policy things have become these spectacles mm-hmm. of media consumption, where they're flying commentators over to like sit outside the castle in Geneva and just sort of like, really, yeah. like, it's not a sporting event. But yeah. we treat it like it's a sporting event, which yeah. just kind of drives me bananas. But yeah. you're totally right about the optics. And I think with someone like Biden... Of course, he reads the whole binder and he does all the briefings and he talks to all his people and he engages all these very smart people that he has hired to work for him. Um, but he's a very natural guy. He yeah. he's comfortable in this domain. He knows what he's doing, and you know all that all that stuff you briefed him on is probably like psh, in terms of don't do this, yeah. do do this when yeah. you get in the room. And I don't even mean that in a bad way. So I think you know when he goes in and. I'm sure there was discussion of should you shake the hand? Yeah. How should this work? But when he just legitimately puts out his hand to shake Putin's hand, that's Joe Biden, right? Like yeah. there's no reason not yeah. to shake the man's hand. Like yeah. you agreed to do the meeting, like extend the hand. Yeah. Let's show there's a tone of engagement. Why not? Yeah. So I think there's some stuff like that that Biden's just really good at where it sort of dissolves this like dumb spectacle conversation into yeah. like it's just two world leaders that need to sit down and have this meeting. And so I think some of that was good. Um, it's – you know, you can 
as Fox News was doing and Newsmax yesterday, microanalyze the like body posture mm-hmm. and Biden was sort of relaxed and casual and Putin sitting there with his man spread like he always does mm-hmm. and like yeah, whatever. I think it was much more interesting how they viewed the meeting. Biden came out with positive talking points. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we talked about that. these things. I raised this stuff. We told him this. Um, we're hoping this. I tried to explain to him that, you know, Russia doesn't need to be this international pariah that they can, you know, that this is always the great hope, right? You can yeah. somehow convince them that yeah. they could be a different way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he comes out with these positive talking points and in general has a pretty good press conference. Yeah. Um, and you can agree or not agree with their take on things, but he was clear in communicating what he was there for. Putin comes out with this very doggy downer. Yeah. It is not us. It is America. It is not us. It was Navalny. It is not yeah. us. It was Ukraine. You right. know, nobody did anything. It was, it was always someone else. Russia is great. Our farts smell like roses, you know, <laughs> and, um, and that's, that's very Putin. And I think just the yeah. way the whole thing was set up, Biden is there with his diplomats. Putin comes in with two generals and a bunch of thugs. And it was, it was a very, how they were acting in that venue was very yeah. interesting to me. I do think Biden looked very comfortable, and I think Putin wasn't really sure how it was going to go. Yeah. Um, and I think that showed with who he came with, how he talked, how they're how they're sort of positing it in Russian media now. Yeah. So it's interesting. The whole exchange was very interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about expectations among U.S. voters in particular voters on the left. Molly, one of the things we talked about last time we broached this topic, and I can't remember uh, which episode it was on, but we'll link it in the show notes. One of the things we talked about was a pincer. uh, You called it a pincer, I think, of isolationism. We were talking about how there seems to be this growing appetite on both the right and the left among certain groups to stay out of intervening Um, on the world stage. And on the right, that comes from a posture of, it's not our job. We don't, it's not our job anymore, right? And on the left, it comes from, it's not our place. We don't have the right to intervene on the, and so those are two, those are two, you know, sort of, you can call them fringe groups on the right and on the left, but together they are creating this sort of political force um, that is sort of propping up American isolationist uh, tendencies. And so, Theron, I wonder what you make of that with regard to the political pressure that might be on Biden and the administration to stay away from being too tough on Russia and potentially, you know, escalating conflict. And how do you, how do you see that? Well, I think the the first thing is, you know, we we will never really know the amount of intelligence yeah. uh, in, in in the intelligence briefings of what's really going on right now between the the U.S. and Russia. I trust and believe, like most American voters, that this president, as Molly mentioned and you mentioned, Ron, is is good on foreign affairs. Yeah. He's going to read the briefings. He's been there before. He's battle tested. He's not walking to the Oval Office without any experience. However, yeah. I think the American voter really wants to make sure that the president is doing everything that he can to protect the homeland, yes. right? So while they may sort of go back and forth for how on the offense, how much on the offense should he be and as far as like, you know, poking the bear and getting things riled up. But what I can tell you that is a bipartisan feeling is let's do everything we can to protect the homeland. Yeah. And, and that's really the first responsibility of the president. I think the other thing that we struggle with sometimes also, though, is that now that the meeting has happened, I agree with the posture and sort of, you know, handle it in a very diplomatic way. The Biden administration team have 
the mechanisms to really make sure that they're doing focus groups, kind of really yeah. figuring out, like, okay, how to display with moderate, Democrat. Yeah, and then you always got to pay very, very close attention and give deference to the more progressive wing of the mm-hmm. Democratic Party. But also, you know, Joe Biden didn't become the president of the United States of America by just getting Democratic votes, right? right? There were a That's lot right. of independents, yeah. a lot of disaffected Republican, suburban, college-educated white women who yeah. voted for him. And so I think that therein lies sort of the challenge. But ultimately, what I'm proud of, not just as a Democrat, but as a, as a citizen of this great country, is that we have a president that is at least willing to work with people who we can work with, but also make sure that he doesn't, um, in a non-transparent way, hide the fact that Russia is a problem. Yeah. And we need to make sure that we keep an eye on them and do everything we can to protect the homeland. I think he did that well. Uh, and I think, I think you know, as we mentioned earlier, I think overall it was a political win because we had an adult on the world stage, right? That's it. We didn't, ha- we, we didn't have a, a, a somebody who's cozying up because he needed approval of a, of a big tough guy, right? That's, that was Donald Trump. So, and he didn't get up and walk out of the room and, and exactly. leave his daughter sitting yeah. in the chair with the G7. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, I've, you know, Lucy Caldwell tweeted this the other day, but she noted that a lot of people in her world, Helsinki was the moment yeah. that the, the last, the meeting with Trump uh, at Helsinki was the moment when a lot of Republicans defected. And they said, this, this guy, <laughs> this guy just like, he doesn't get it. And rightly right? so. Yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, John Seifer, mm-hmm. our friend John Seifer, um, 25 something years at running rush operations at CIA. Yep. Molly, one of the one of the last things he said on the topic was basically there can be no more resets mm-hmm. with Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're out of them. We're out of resets. Was this an attempt at a reset? And if not, I guess in a nutshell, what would you say the prognosis is for the relationship going forward? You know, I wouldn't call it a reset because I, I do think there's at least the the nascent understanding of that, um, which is why they have this horrible, clearly focus grouped, tested, everybody using a talking point of we want a stable and predictable relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we Russia thinks we have a stable and predictable <laughs> relationship. It's just not the one you it's want, the one you, you know. Want. But yeah. um, so it's true that this. And I think I've used this before with you, but, you know, every administration comes in and they get the binder and they read the binder and they get to the end of the binder. And it's like, oh, well, if only we explained to Russia that they should just want to be part of the West and it would be so much better if they would just be in here and do our stuff. Like, and as soon as they understand this, it's all going to be fine. And every administration then has this two-year to four-year learning cycle that that's not going to turn out the way yeah. you want it and yeah. it's going to blow up in your face. Um, and so I think we're skipping some of that, but... Again, it's these points that they go back to, and, and it really gets back to what um, what Theron's saying about this need to sort of, like, Joe Biden knows what he's doing. Yeah. He's very much in the yeah. democracy, freedom in the world space, but is trying to cater to whatever progressive foreign policy is, yeah. which I don't really understand. It tends to be very isolationist. There's a whole lot of this climate, like, we need to save the world stuff in there. And you see this very heavily layered into everything Biden did this week, yeah. where on every communique climate was above democracy. And I have a problem with that. And I know that progressives probably love it. But um, when this administration, I think, really does believe, which is why John Kerry has the job that he has, you know, we have to work with China and Russia on climate change. It's this global priority, blah, blah, blah. I'm not a climate denier. 100%. We need to be like back in the space leading on these issues. But the belief that like mobilizing autocratic states to this cause 
um, is uh, going to be an advantage to us undermines every message about the power and innovation of democracies. Mm. And, you know, I, I would love to see what the numbers are if you talk to younger people who are democracy skeptics yeah. and really believe that climate change is the most important existential threat. Um, you know, if you said we could get, you know, we could fix this issue faster with Uyghur slave camps yeah. and gulag labor in China. Um, yeah, and centralized control and central planning. You know, do you think that's a fair, like, would you give up rights and freedoms right. to fix this issue? Um, I, I don't know what they would say. And I think that this is going to be this inherent an challenge. Question. I'm working on a long piece that's on this. It's going to be an question. inherent challenge. It's a fascinating question. Is, you know, between democracy and saving the world, uh, what, how do you, how do you solve that line? And I really saw that this whole week, this administration struggling with rectifying these yeah. issues, which are both super important and yeah. they're behind both of them and they're going to support both of them. But I think it does at some point blow up in your face because yeah. Russia and China will capture you mm. on negotiations mm. on things like climate change um, and force you to give concessions against all the things that are your values and interests. I so. see. But I think the president really showed that the attempt is to do both, right? You got to have a very high-level, intense conversation about climate change mm -hmm. for a few reasons. One, yes, it polls well, not only with progressives, but, you know, with a lot of people who mm -hmm. believe that we need to address the issue of climate change. But secondly, you know, the American people had a former president who did nothing about climate change for four years. Yeah. And so— Wouldn't even acknowledge it. Wouldn't even acknowledge yeah. it. So, so it's a confluence of being pro-democracy, right, which I think— Joe Biden, he epitomizes, you yeah. know, the diplomatic approach to democracy, right, which is the fabric of our country. But also, I think to your point, he had to really highlight this issue because he also campaigned heavily on it. I mean, there were a lot of turning points in the Biden campaign. You know, we can all go back and sort of say, well, this was the moment. You know, was it South Carolina? Was it how he handled the first debate? Was it, you know, really focusing on uh, building a broader coalition? But climate change remained constant yeah. in his messaging, right? Yeah. And so— the American people will hold you accountable throughout your tenure as president, but particularly that first year. Yeah. And so had he not elevated it in the way that he's done, and I think that many of his supporters and critics would have said, okay, you spent yeah. you know, a year or so campaigning on the importance of climate change and how we got to acknowledge it and that it exists and we got to yeah. do something about it. But when you had the opportunity to address it, you didn't really enforce it as much. So while it did, I agree, it was higher and sort of maybe on the priority list in democracy, but I don't think he eliminated the ability to uh, promote a more democratic, mm -hmm. you know, approach to this. But yeah. at the same time, coming away with the wind, going on the record for saying, hey, I want to work with you to deal with our climate change issue. Maybe pulling back from my own tangent, which I totally laid that trap for myself. But, um, <laughs> but your, your question on the reset issue, yeah. Yeah. which is, so I don't think, I really don't think this is the full clean slate, yeah. like let's start over. Um, but I think this, the the optimism on we can find issues of mutual interest does not exist. Like there are no issues. I mean, yes, we need to not nuke each other. And yeah. I think we all agree. Yep. Arms control talks, good. Let's do yeah. that. Um, but this this idea that there are issues of mutual interest with Russia is just not true because that's not yeah. how they view it. Right. Like, you know, yeah. the, the same way they didn't view solving the pandemic as an yeah. issue of mutual interest, right? right. They view it as a right. as a zero sum everything is diplomatic zero -sum fight. Yeah. Right. So um, I, I just think that's the part where there are there are these traps, and not because Joe Biden doesn't know that, and not because the people around him aren't smart. It's just that 
Russia is really good at this, and they are really good at engaging us in process that waste time while they build militias in the United States and, you know, lay information operations across the world on a bunch of different issues. And any time you give them is time when this is advancing. And so I just, I hope that we are not giving them open space right now on a whole range of issues where they're not pausing to see what happens in six months. That's all. There's one more Putin night I want to get to, and this will actually serve as a good transition to our next topic. Uh, we could just as well put it in, in the under the next topic. But Dana Rohrbacher, mm. former congressman from California who is openly known to be one of the Kremlin's most preferred American politicians, was at the Capitol on January 6th. And um, Theron, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the total destruction of really critical democratic norms that took place in the last few years and how it is that we're in a place where a former Republican congressman who is openly friendly with an American adversary takes part in a violent attack on our government and isn't immediately condemned and if not jailed for turning his back on our country. And more broadly, what sort of messaging or tactical opportunities do you see for Democrats here Especially, especially around um, you know what happened on January sixth, and as we find more and more, this we'll get to this in the next segment. But there are now people running for Congress who were at the insurrection. So, like, how do you see Democrats handling this, especially vis-a-vis Russia? Well, the first thing Democrats have got to continue doing is tell the truth. Um, you know, you hear Republicans complaining about these sort of Democratic control committee hearings where, you know, they're looking back on what happened, you know, leading up to the insurrection. You know, we're going to get into this later, but yeah. the calls and the emails that were made yeah. for people to try to overturn the election. So I think the Democrats have got to continue to have the hearings, continue to produce the evidence. Um, you know, if you have a, you know somebody running for Congress who participated yeah. in this, I mean, that person should be condemned. Yeah. I mean, they they, they committed uh, sedition. It was it was an insurrection on the the, the prestigious you know, and uh, under U.S. Capitol, I mean, something that is so valuable to us as, as Americans. And then yeah. I think the second thing is, is that we, we got to really sort of continue with holding the uh, Republicans accountable who support what the former president incited, not just on that yeah. day of the rally, but yeah. all those months leading up to yeah. January 6th. But there's going to come a point in time where, honestly, Democrats are now going to have to talk about, okay, so what are we going to do about it? Right, exactly. And I I, I trust our leaders um, in the Senate and also in the House, also the Democratic National Committee, the DSCC, the DCCC, because we got to go out and get people Mm reelected and we got to protect the seats that we have. And we got some really good candidates that are going to have to have guidance on what to run on to talk about, okay, yeah, January 6th happened. We, We are doing everything we can to uncover you know, what the government's responsibility was in that, mm-hmm. um, members of, you know, who participated. And we've put out, you know, we put this all out about what President Trump's role was in it. But now going forward, this is what we've been able to do, what we've been able to pass in the House and the Senate. This is legislation that we've been able to craft. And mm-hmm. and quite frankly, we create a different culture in this country that doesn't, um, you know, incite the type of violence and, and the sort of dissension yeah. that was incited by the former administration. So speaking of the insurrection and Republican office holders, this is the guy I was talking about. A New Hampshire man who took part in the Capitol attack is now contemplating running for Congress to unseat New Hampshire Congresswoman Ann Kuster, who's a Democrat representing the 2nd District there. This very well may be 
an attempt to extend his 15 minutes of infamy, but there's something he said that I actually think is pertinent and we should talk about, which is, uh, he told NBC 10 Boston, quote, in the long run, if you're running for office, any attention is good attention, so I think it will help me. It obviously refers to his participation in the attack on January 6th. You know, first, there were QAnon conspiracy theorists who ran for Congress, and then to everybody's horror, they won. Now we've got a bona fide insurrectionist possibly running for the House. Mark McCloskey, everybody remembers the St. Louis lawyer who is known for waving his rifle at Black Lives Matter protesters last year, has now announced he's running for Senate. Um, So, Theron, back to you again on this. It's tempting to ignore somebody like this guy in New Hampshire, Um, but we've seen there really is no limit to the depravity in the Republican Party. And I wonder, worry, I think I agree, when he said, if you're running for office, any attention is good attention, Donald Trump kind of proved that that it can be true to an extent. First of all, do you think that's true? Do you think he's right about that, at least that part? And are there going to be states or districts where insurrectionists successfully run for Congress? And, sorry, another third question. I know I'm stacking them up for you. And then, and then <laughs> how do you advise, I know it's a case-by-case basis, but how would you in general advise Democrats to run against somebody like that? I, I know it's a district-dependent question, but is there, if there's some piece of strategy you can, you can offer for, for that situation, we'd love to hear it. Well, you know, to remind your listeners, I mean, I live in Georgia, so QAnon, Trump loyalists, all this. I mean, we kind of sort of become a melting pot of that a little bit. But let me start with your first question is any publicity, you know, sort of good publicity. And I disagree with that. I think um, Donald Trump was a rare exception because he was a reality show superstar. Right. So we expected him to put on a show. We expected him to sort of go against the norm. And, and that, quite frankly, he motivated a wing of the Republican Party that was very upset and they were looking for an outsider. They were looking for someone that would not be so politically correct and, and, and quote unquote, the establishment. So the establishment of the Republican Party is is pretty much gone. I mean, they are now trying to figure out, OK, how do we live in this sort of new norm where even though the former president doesn't occupy the White House, he is still supported by 85% plus of registered Republican voters all across the country, particularly in the South. So your second question is, how do you, how do you, you know, why are these people running who clearly was a part of insurrection and who's proud of, who's not running away from it? Well, I tell you why I run is that there's a segment within the Republican primary voters that actually don't care about that. They actually believe what happened on January 6th was, was some of them feel it was terrible, but they still believe that the election was stolen. They 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 wanted to believe that there was all these conspiracy theories about the outcome of the election. And they, they don't necessarily blame President Trump for everything, but they do um, not like what happened. I mean, people lost their lives. I mean, at a time we have a vote this week where they there were uh, Republican members of the House who wouldn't vote to give gold medals to the police officers that put the men and women who put their um, lives on the line to protect us. And so I, I do believe that it will work in a Republican primary to run. You mentioned a gentleman in, in, in St. Louis, but I think when you get to a general election, it really depends on the dynamics of the state. And it really depends on, quite frankly, um, you know, voter turnout. And we know history shows us that the party that occupies the White House usually 
has a bad midterm coming up. Just look at what happened in 2010. President Obama came in, yep. united the country. Everybody was happy. And then 2010 comes and Democrats suffered some of their worst losses in the That's in right. the House and, and, and particularly, um, I'm sorry, in the House and in yeah. the Senate. Yeah. And then I think your, your, your last question about how do you go against it? Well, you got to do what we did in Georgia. I mean, I hate to you know, continue to, you know, yeah. focus on Georgia. But really, I think, you know, we not only saved the, the country. Yes, you did. Um, <laughs> yes, you know, we you saved did. democracy, right? <laughs> and look at what we what we did. You know, um, I spent some time this week with Senator Raphael Warnock, uh, who ran a very non-traditional campaign. Uh, his candidacy was non-traditional. He was yeah. a pastor, never had been elected before. So he brought a level of humanization to issues and campaigned in a very positive way while his opponent spent upwards to you know, $100 million attacking him and labeling him as a socialist and all these different things. So it's got to be a case-by-case basis. But I believe the way Democrats win across the country, but particularly in the West and in the South mm-hmm. and in the Northeast too and the Midwest all over, is we got to have a base plus strategy. You got to make sure that you do everything you can to keep the base motivated, but you got to continue to keep expanding the electorate. Because the fact of the matter is, if you look at how President Joe Biden became president, he picked a great running mate in in Vice President Kamala Harris, but he's not a flaming left, liberal, radical, progressive Democrat. He is a moderate Democrat that is doing some really good things that are progressive, but is still trying to figure out ways to, in a bipartisan way, work uh, to move the agenda of the country forward. And expand the coalition. And, and expand the coalition. Yeah. And, and I always talked about this before. It's the Biden coalition. The Biden coalition was just a lot of different voters. And so I think it's a month-by-month, case-by-case basis. It's a state-by-state sort of approach. But Democrats, we got to continue to make sure that we lead. Uh, and more importantly, we push back on the rights, lies, and fake mm-hmm. news. But at the same time, don't abandon the moderate independent voters that were with yeah. us yeah. Uh, a year ago and figure out a way to maintain as many of those folks as we can. I'm surprised that you remembered all three of those questions. <laughs> that was masterfully done, Darren. Well, thank you. <laughs> Speaking of lies, among the purveyors of the big lie, Molly, most of them, I would think, knew better. Um, mm-hmm. Mark Meadows included. We found out recently Meadows was hammering Deputy Attorney General Jeff mm-hmm. Rosen with some absolutely bonkers conspiracy theories, pressuring him to use the DOJ to give credence to the big lie. So I'm wondering, uh, there's several questions here, but what does this tell us about how the White House saw the DOJ as a political tool? What does this show about how close we were to an actual coup? Mm-hmm. If not for a few people in positions who were adamantly trying to do the right thing, um, despite all this pressure, uh, you know, January 21 ends up looking very differently. So how how are you thinking about this? What the, what does this make you think about as you start to see just how bad it was, just how close we came to a, to a real bona fide coup? Yeah, I, I still don't know that coup is the word that I would use, but, okay. but real bona fide what do you call it? I mean, shit, excuse the yeah, language. Yeah, sure. absolutely. And I think, you know, it's really funny to me, this whole like, oh my God, Mark Meadows was bathing in conspiracy. Like, yeah. Mark Meadows, did everybody miss the whole like dinosaurs walked the earth oh. with humans episode where Mark Meadows was investing his own personal money in proving that dinosaurs and men lived on the earth together because like the dinosaurs missed the ark or whatever. Like, 
This is how he got elected to Congress. I'm not sure why anybody was surprised that he like wasn't grounded yeah. in reality. I'm sorry, yeah. but like yeah. these and Trump was really good. One of his like magic skills was gathering up these people mm -hmm. that had been pretending to be normal politicians uh, and sort of dusting off the yeah. the normal makeup they had put on and showing the clowns underneath and and they loved it. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is really the uh, my my pushback to the Democrats can do this and yeah. win all these things and and, and all publicity isn't good publicity uh, take is really um, yes that's true and I think that there are uh, Joe Biden has created with the vision he has laid out domestically that really is and totally underrated and not discussed enough because I think the news yeah. media is still so attached to this. Oh, yeah. But where is the oh. spectacle that we must comment right. on today? Yeah, I mean, they look, they're losing money. I know. Right? They're and losing money. Which is why they're all amplifying Wuhan conspiracies. Yeah. Oh, but like, which, yeah. we'll get to Stay that later. Stay Plus. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I think, you know, but but Biden really has laid out, and Biden and his, his very talented team, not getting enough credit for it, a transformative vision of how the American government is delivering what democracy is to American citizens for the next century if people take them up on it, right? This idea of what what is the democracy dividend in this Ooh, new century, yeah. you know? And I think Biden's really laying that out. We need to invest in infrastructure. We need to invest in you. We need to invest in healthcare. We need to invest in education. Like we know what these big transitions are in terms of post-work society and AI and yeah. you know, auto automization of everything. And like all of this is coming. They're looking at these things, which, I mean, Trump couldn't spell most of those <laughs> words. And, like, so I think all of that is there and it is there for smart, good, capable Democrats to pick up and run on and talk to people about underneath and throughout the things they need to talk about locally to get elected and, and engage their own voters on, on issues of substance to yeah. their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. So that is all really important. But this machinery that supports the pipeline of assholes, and again, apologies for the language, yeah. but I just yeah. can't think of a different Please. word for it. Yeah. But the pipeline of assholes that is sucking in the war criminals, insurrectionists, QAnon right. believers, right. and providing them hundreds of millions of dollars collectively of small dollar donations, yeah. of billionaire money, um, that they are rewarded for bad behavior in the same way people like Putin are rewarded for their bad behavior, but like rewarding them for bad behavior with, with the attention economy that gets them money. That's right. That is so dangerous, and yeah. that is all that is left, as you say, my friend, of the Republican Party. There yeah. is no establishment left. It is just these disgusting leeches like Mark Meadows who understand what Trump did was harness the hedonistic worst energy of the country in a way that people love. They're not sad. They're not sad. They're not in Congress, like, writing legislation every oh, day. No. They love every minute want, of this circus. That's right. Yeah. Oh, they love it. <laughs> and I think we really underestimate how much they love the habit they are reeking yeah. because it's just fun yeah. and they're like showering in their dirty money and they love every day of it. So I think we're going to learn more about how bad Trump was as president because they all knew and they didn't say anything about it. Yeah. And we're going to learn more about how he was trying to abuse every possible inch of surveillance capability, you know, uh, authorities to delve into people's private lives against opponents, particularly opponents that seem to be working on issues yep. relating to Russia. Go yep. figure. Yep. Um, it, we're going to learn so much more about this, and Republicans are going to shield their eyes and look away and say Democrats did it first and whatever else. But um, this is uh, – like Democrats need to be – it's not popular. You're not going to get elected on it. 
they need to hammer this issue repeatedly. We must investigate these things. We must investigate January 6th. We must investigate all the stuff that Trump did. We must investigate every dollar of the billions of dollars that Trump diverted from defense spending to the freaking wall, which all went to his buddies who are probably paying it back to him right now. Like, there's no wall. Where'd that money go? Like, where are all these yeah. investigations? Yeah. This needs to happen or yeah. we will have it again. It will just keep happening. Yeah. And I know that Republicans don't talk about it and their media is not talking oh, about it and Republican yeah. voters aren't aware of any of this stuff and yeah. they still think it was a stolen election and that Hillary Clinton is growing oh, yeah. horns right now. But like <laughs> we can't cater to that level yeah. of discussion because 70 percent of Americans don't believe that stuff. And we just need to keep remembering That's that right. every day. Darren, you were nodding and like, you got, you got, OK, <laughs> yeah, really quickly, Ron, yeah, if you don't mind, do. yeah. I, I got to really just really point out something that Molly said yeah. and. For everyone, you know, your listeners are very educated and, yeah. they, and they do their own research. And I think we would be remiss to really not sort of expound upon what yeah. Molly was saying is that look at all the things that President Biden is doing. He's talking about infrastructure, AI. Yeah. I mean, he's talking about the future. But yeah. unfortunately, he's got to focus on the chaos that's going on in the right. Absolutely. But yeah. Molly, for all of my you know listeners who support Democratic candidates, she just kind of laid it out yeah. that it's, it's sort of a, a balance that we've got to do. But also what I was going to say that I would be remiss not to mention is that we cannot ignore the fact that we're coming out of this deadly pandemic, yeah. right? Yeah. So at a time that's where right. we still know that vaccination rates are low, I was very happy to see this week that Vice President Kamala Harris was on a bus tour this week, you know, on the We Can Do This tour, encouraging people to get vaccinated, yeah. right? And not only raising awareness around it, but myths. And so now what this administration has got to focus on is a new norm post-COVID-19 yeah. America. And what does that look like? At a time where unemployment benefits are being cut, you know, we're asking people to go back to work. There's no more stimmies, as we call it, you know, that yeah. probably won't be coming our way as much anytime soon. And so to, to, I want to just really thank Molly for really doing a sensational job, better than I did of saying yeah true. All these, no seriously all these things are going to happen and but but I just wanted to add in a sort of you know uh, conversation about this deadly pandemic and really just encourage people to go get vaccinated yeah. uh, and more importantly to continue to be safe but now every company every government every small business we're thinking about what if this happens again and we're all trying to put in the infrastructure to make sure that we can survive it like many Americans yes. have been able to yes there was a fantastic article in Rolling Stone this week that we'll link to in the show notes. And yes, I am doing a bit of log rolling here because the centerpiece <laughs> of this piece was uh, the special recording we did with uh, the other departed Lincoln Project co-founders, George Conway, Mike Madrid, and Jennifer Horn. But also the article goes deep into how and why after losing an election and sparking an insurrection, the GOP still can't quit Trump. Adam Kinzinger, a Republican congressman from Illinois, makes the claim that it's all about the money. You need money to win elections, and the only way Republicans are raising money is by swearing loyalty to Trump and to the craziest and most conspiratorial claims. Molly, this is what you were getting at in their 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 love of dirty money and they're happy they're perfect perfectly happy to not be in office. Yeah. Right. Um so you know, I, I want to hear from both of you about this, even though uh, I, I want to hear about how you see the Republican Party going forward and how a party that is based solely on loyalty to a disgraced loser, how they go on to win elections, what is their roadmap, 
And what can Democrats do to thwart it? Who wants to go first here? <laughs> I, I'll take it. I, okay. I, I think in in uh, okay. Molly's like yeah. <laughs> no. Look, I, I think one of the things that I, I I focused on earlier in our conversation is that if you just look at history, you know the the party who occupies the White House usually yep. takes some midterm losses. I think the difference this time though is that. Democrats have got to realize the fact that we don't have Donald Trump on the ballot, right? right. While he will insert himself, um, can't do it on Twitter or Facebook anymore, but he'll figure out a way to do it. He's going to insert himself and his influence uh, in a lot of upcoming elections. I think that if you look at his first public appearance was in North Carolina. That wasn't by mistake. I mean, they know that they got to hold on to North Carolina if they're going to try to recapture the South. I think the second thing that Democrats have got to do is that we got to be very honest about where the American people are, right? And that's why I really wanted to harp on coming out of COVID-19, right? Because to me, that's just a nonpartisan issue. We need to make sure that government is working along with the private sector and the public sector to do everything we can to keep people alive. But how do we articulate that? And I think that's where Joe Biden is going to be able to really reach into the soul of America and say, look, my predecessor— you know, promised you a lot of things that he wasn't able to deliver on. But look at how many people I've been able to get vaccinated. Look at how I've worked with people to uh, get them back to work, uh, get, you know, small businesses and big businesses going again. So I think we got to have a very specific message about what we are doing and what we've done for you. The thing that I worry about also, though, is, is that there is a sentiment out here that Republicans may say, you know what, okay, we voted for Joe Biden. We voted for Kamala Harris. We voted for these senators and these members of the House. So we gave you, you know, Democrats a win. But now we feel sort of obligated to now entertain some Republican candidates. But the problem with the Republicans is what Molly said. It, it, they have no establishment. The Reagan Republicans are gone. The, the compassionate conservatives, where are they? The Bush Republicans the, are the, gone. The Bush <laughs> Republicans are gone, right? And so they, they're afraid to actually rear their head and say anything that is— you know, that reminds us of the, of those Bush Reagan, yep. um, you know, Republicans because they'll get attacked by the Trump supporters. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I think the other thing is is that we've got to make sure um, that we pay attention to where the American voters are, but we've got to make sure that we have a sound base. Yeah. You know, we've got to be really good with our yeah. base of a party because the truth of the matter is, yeah. we saw massive turnout all across the country yep. from black and brown voters. Yes, that's and right. we got to make sure that we don't make them feel alienated. And, you know, we got to make sure that we keep the moderates and the independents with us as well. So it's a very tough task ahead. Yeah. But I think ultimately you haven't seen the infighting and the dissension in the Democratic Party yeah. uh, that we thought was going to happen right away. You got to yeah. give a lot of credit to Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer and the president and the vice president for doing everything they can to keep the party together. Yeah. I just want to underscore one thing you said, which was you haven't heard any of the Bush Republicans or Reagan Republicans speak up yeah. about this because they're worried they'll be attacked by the Trump voters, by the Trump Republicans. Mm-hmm. That speaks to just how powerful financially and politically the Trump segment is. Think well, about that. And and I think not to be underrated is the fact that this is no longer people saying mean things about you on Twitter. Right. This is people showing up at your house and threatening your kids yep. and like trying to light your car on fire. Like yep. there is a, a serious physical security threat by going against a crazy yeah. proven to be violent mob of folk. Um, and a lot of people are just like, why on earth? 
would I do this anymore when I could just like maybe take a TV commentator gig and like go work as a lobbyist for cannabis as they all seem to be doing (sighs) and live quite comfortably for the rest of my life. Um, And and so I think, you know, kudos to Adam Kinzinger and a few others like Peter Meyer. Yeah. Um, But Kinzinger in particular, who throughout the Trump years consistently bothered to answer the calls of reporters looking for comment on crazy shit that Trump did. Um, Because he really was the only one. And uh, and he really stood up to all of this because partially because of his uh, sort of core identity in foreign policy and national security and knowing how bad Trump was for all of these things. So I just, I think getting back to to all of these great points about what Democrats can do uh, and I think where there's still space for Whatever the remaining, maybe they're not Republicans anymore, non-democratic, independent, yeah. you know, whatever's like whatever the new thing forming is. And there yeah. are people trying to sort of stir the embers in that space. <laughs> yeah. But I think Biden really has laid this framework for people who want to show up, which is if you can't. And I do think that space is still there, which is if you can't. And there's not a lot of time. Got to do, you know, you have to have a two year deliverable. Got to have some four year deliverables. If you can actually show Americans that this matters to their pockets and to their families in the way that during the Trump years, when everything was crazy and bad, everybody's 401ks were like, so everybody was like, "Ah, who cares about this democracy stuff? Like, my life is fine. My life is great. I love it. It's fine. But if you can actually show people that the way that, that Democrats are approaching governance matters for you, it is cutting your taxes, mm-hmm. it is making your life better, it is making your education costs lower, it is guaranteeing that you will have better health care which are things that Americans actually do care about, yes. especially aging Americans. <clears throat> yeah. um, I think that there is space there to, yes, there will still be the pipeline of the crazies, sure. but yeah. you can pry off more of it, especially if you start to break down some of these primary systems into more open competitive systems. Yes, right. Um, this is all to say nothing of redistricting and all the anti-democracy yes. bills that are proliferating, but yes. But I think that – and that last yeah. point is a really important one, yeah. which is all of the black and brown voters, especially yeah. younger voters. Um, I haven't heard a lot about this space from them. Like where is the focus grouping on mm. do young Latino voters understand what these mm. new bills are – that yeah, are that taking is, away is, their voting rights. This is actually rights. a really like, good question, <laughs> Theron, because, because like we're also assuming that if Democrats go out there and say, look at what we're doing for you, look at what we're, how we're how, look at our vision for what post-COVID-19 life in America could look like and what we're doing to bring it about, we're also assuming that they're going to vote in their in their interests. We're also assuming that they're going to be rational participants in in the way they vote. And it, then they're not going to be, get sidetracked by the culture wars. Well, well, Molly brought up a good point. You've just been saving me all day today. <laughs> while, I, while I try to make sure that, you know, I, I focus on how the black and brown voters, you know, played a significant role in the election outcome. And we had a massive demogra- um, demographic shifts. We can't underscore, you know, you got to you can't leave out the fact that young voters played a huge role in electing the president. The vice president, U.S. senators, members of Congress, and you know even down to the state level. So the challenge is how do you keep them active? How do you keep their attention? And I'm sure there's some focus groups going on uh, about it. But if you just really look at also, I just got to say this. I mean, yeah. you, you're starting to see a little bit. I don't want to beat up on Republicans on the whole entire podcast. But, I mean, but 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 but, but <laughs> you, you did you did have something, and I know it wasn't you know sort of in our in our roundup today. Uh, but you did have something that happened in this country. You had a unanimous vote uh, to make Juneteenth a national right. and federal holiday. That's right. A unanimous vote, right? Yeah. We're 50-50 in the, in the U.S. Senate. And I think that 
something is happening in this country. You know, I work for Congressman Lewis. He always talked about the spirit of this country, right? Something is happening. You know, he always used to like to be at marches and talk to people, and he was just a very spiritual person, but would always sort of want to see what type of aura you exuded. Mm. And I would like to just kind of, in my you know, best of my ability, not saying I'm, I'm a John Lewis, but to say that I think that that vote was— it signifies something, you know. It also passed the, the House as well, and so now it's on its way to the president's desk to yeah. be to be signed. So Democrats and Republicans, this is a moment you yeah. can actually highlight that. There's yeah. nothing wrong with saying, yeah. if you're Republican Democrat, I came together to make a national and federal holiday, and it wasn't all this controversy yeah. that we saw around making, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. Yeah. I mean, it was That's met right. with unanimous support. So we just got to take advantage of those moments. Well, we're on that. Were you surprised by the unanimity? I'll be honest with you, I yeah. was, because think about it. I mean, yeah. it was leading up to, to President Biden's visit to, to, to really tackle the issue around Russia and the deal with Putin. We were looking yeah. at that. You know, we still have killings. You know, crime yeah. is up all across the country. Republicans are blaming blaming Democratic mayors on doing enough. Yeah. You know, Democrats are blaming Republican states for having open carry, you know, right. laws that they won't, you know, deal with. And so it was just a lot of division coming off of George, George Floyd. And, you know, in Georgia, Rayshard Brooks, who was shot in the back by uh, a white police officer, um, you know, just didn't really know where the country was. But then to come back and then right, think about it, on the hills of Tulsa, right. where we learned that this massacre happened. And then I also learned more about what happened in Atlanta. We also had an Atlanta massacre, right? So to have all these things leading up and then to have a unanimous vote to make something a, a national holiday and do it before it actually comes up again, you got to think Republicans were saying, this is something that I can go back to my district and, uh, and, and don't get criticized yeah, for, right? And in yeah. the timing of it, you'll see amplification of it this weekend to really make sure that people are highlighting how significant that was. Yeah. And I really do think it's such an important space and it's so worth talking about for a minute because, I, you know, while it is popular on all cable news to highlight the endless whatever culture war, yep. you know, why are we talking about Marxism? No one even knows. Topic of the day. Um the thing about Americans that is true of all Americans is most of us have no idea where we came from. Like at some point we lose track of our family <laughs> yeah. and we love our stories, That's right? right? Yeah. But we love discovering and rediscovering the American story in new ways. And, um, you know, it's sort of like the, when you're in school and the first time you learn about Japanese internment camps in World War II and you're like, what do you mean we did? And like, wow. it's like, yeah. and it's you're just like, like such a fascinating what? thing, not yeah. because it's fascinating, like, oh, we should do this again, but like. You just didn't know about it. And it's the same with all these new episodes of history. So I think especially in the context of this time period where idiots have been trying to weaponize topics of history and Confederate monument wars and all of this nonsense that really doesn't represent what I think most Americans think about who we are and what we stand for, when there are these moments to have meaningful discussions of our history in ways where, no, it's not pretty, like this isn't like a kumbaya, look at look at what happened in Tulsa yeah. moment, but where you can look at it and face it and talk about it and understand the bad thing that led to good, that sort of represented good things and how that has always been a part of the American story, mm. that we face our own demons and pull ourselves out the other side. Uh, so I think there's so much room for that kind of storytelling, and it really does start to drown out the sort of hate-based cheap point yeah. stuff after a while. Um, but it's so important to do it, and it takes a lot of work. Um, but I think the vote the, the, this the, week the showed— The unanimity of the vote, yeah. I think that is really key. 
Exactly. Really and, key. But there's space here yeah. to do this. And it's not all yeah. going to be culture wars. It just takes time and effort yeah. and, and often a lot of uh, backbreaking work by those trying to bring episodes of history to the to the top. But um, but it is so important. And I think it gets lost in yeah. the day-to-day division talk that we have that we're always in this quest for other parts of the American story that we don't know. And I think most of us know there's a lot of our history we don't know. Yeah. Um, and it's so valuable to do this. And I think we need to do more of it. That's all. All right. So let's cover our last topic briefly, which is this DOJ investigation. So it's been reported and confirmed that Trump era Justice Department officials secretly seized the iPhone data of Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff, as well as 10 other or so uh, House Intelligence Committee members and their relatives. Uh, According to the New York Times, which first reported on the seizure last Thursday night, the Justice Department was trying to uncover sources of journalists reporting about contact between Trump associates and Russia. And now the Justice Department Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, has confirmed he's going to launch an investigation into this as well as into the use of subpoenas to obtain journalists' phone records. And just just as a quick refresher on Inspectors General uh, for you, dear listeners, they serve as the independent watchdog over their agency um, to find and prevent uh, and investigate any type of fraud or wrongdoing or criminal activity on on that part of the government. So they're kind of like a built-in watchdog. And you may recall that in the span of just six weeks last spring, Trump fired five inspectors general, all of whom were fired either in retaliation over some action they took or because they were actively investigating the cabinet secretary heading their respective agencies. So there's been uh, therein this drip, drip, drip of evidence showing just how extreme the political pressure was uh, on and in Trump's Department of Justice. Um, this is a question and a problem we've run into before uh, about how Biden can potentially depoliticize the DOJ um, while still investigating legitimate wrongdoing, which we've just discussed he has to continue doing um, in the previous administration. And uh, first, you know, do you expect this slow drip to continue? But also, how do you see the politics of continuing to prosecute all of the terrible things that we know happened and we're going to continue learning about? How is that going to affect the political dynamics in these races? Is it going to just fuel more um, partisan rhetoric? What I've been very surprised about, Ron, is how desensitized some Republicans are. Not all, but some. You know, they don't want to hear that President Trump did all these things. I mean, this is (laughs) basically horrifying. Yeah. He abused the office of the president. He used his powers to investigate journalists, to subpoena phone records and to, you know, that was even, you know, again, not to make this a Georgia specific show, but I am from Georgia. I mean, there were emails that were sent to the then U.S. attorney trying to encourage him to interfere in the election results in Georgia. And I think the emails were sent around 10, 11 o'clock p.m. And then that morning, uh, his name is B.J. Pack, a former state representative, Republican in Georgia, um, Asian-American, and he resigned. And so we don't know how many other U.S. attorneys across the country were influenced. I mean, what we do know is what we've seen today. So there's got to be a a balance. The president has got to continue to make sure that the American people are told the truth. Yep. Uh, it's got to be done in a transparent way. And you got to lay it all out, right? And knowing that it's going to motivate some of the Trump base, but it's also going to remind a lot of voters of how bad this former president was. Yeah. Then we got to make a pivot. 
Yeah. And then we got to get back to what Molly and I have yeah. been talking about. Yeah. Jobs. Yeah. You know, rural hospitals. I mean, that's something. Education. Making it more affordable, you know, for, for kids to go to public schools. And, and we got to talk about infrastructure. And so you'll see the pivot. But unfortunately, it, it, it needs to be done because there are still so many elected Republicans who still want to cozy up to this former president. They're all going to Mar-a-Lago trying to receive his blessings. And they need to understand that you're now complicit. If you continue to go and meet and seek his support and take his money after we have now evidence that he was doing all this stuff, it was so wrong, it was unlawful, it was criminal behavior, and you still want to be associated with him— then we got to make sure that we, you know, we, we you make need sure to pay for that. You need to pay for that. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that that's just uh, really crazy. But lastly, I'll say this. That is why I think that the Department of Justice, you're right. We need to depoliticize it. It needs to be a justice department. It needs to deal with facts, investigate everything. And then the IG's responsibility is to do exactly what you just laid out. And so, you know, at a time where President Biden, again, that's why he is so fit to do this job because he's been in a vice presidential role. He's been there. He worked for the most, I believe, ethical president in our country, which was former President Barack Obama. Except we for did. the tan suit. Right, tan suit. <laughs> he, brought, he, brought, he brought one role. He wore deeply a tan unethical. Suit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, he just he just embodies that integrity yeah. and transparency that the, America, the American voters need right now. Yeah. Okay. Molly, on this topic, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the, you know, in general, the politicization of the country's Mm -hmm. chief law enforcement agency. Mm -hmm. Um, And because this, the kind of stuff we're reading about now that is starting to come out, this is what you see in autocratic states, right? This is, this is, we have examples of, if we, if we saw this kind of thing happening in other countries, the United States would be deeply critical, right? Oh yeah. So what does this make you think about as you see it happening here inside our own So I think there's still this whole conversation that we're not having, haven't had, probably won't have, but really need to have. And this sort of brings it up again um, about what a absolute abject national security threat Donald Trump's presidency was to the United States of America. And, you know, we just sort of gloss over a lot of it now. But part of the reason that the stuff this week with Biden in Europe seems so normal was, you know, nobody was WhatsApping somebody to, like, set up side meetings because it was all happening through diplomatic channels. Like, normal things were happening again. But the way in which Donald Trump and the clowns around him thought that the power of the United States government was theirs to harness against their political opponents – uh, and these people who just annoyed them, like yeah. Swalwell annoyed them. He's not a, he wasn't a threat to them, right? He annoyed them and, and Schiff annoyed them and they believed their own self narratives about who these people were and who their enemies were and they're using, but this was, these were, this was members of the intelligence committee. This is an intelligence risk to the country that the president on multiple fronts was doing these types of things, handing information to the Russians in the Oval Office, you know, whatever it was. All of these things that happened, which Republicans do not want to talk about, and will just deflect and swallow well, eh, like talking points yeah. about what chi- China, whatever. Eh. But the the absolute intelligence risk that everyone Trump gave a special security clearance to, and what they're doing with all of that information now, as they are out of out oh, of their jobs. Yeah. We really need – because they, they weren't just – this wasn't just like they were reading the daily presidential brief and they knew all that stuff, which is bad enough. They were collecting intelligence on 
political opponents, on journalists, on world leaders, on whoever the hell they wanted for their own use. And we know this now and we're not talking about it. And I don't understand why we're not talking about it. And for their own it. use and for their own sale and profit. Like, and you, and that when stuff we know they're valuable. terrible people, yeah. <laughs> like we know yeah. what they're doing with this information yeah. and, and yeah. why it is important to them. And um, I really think we need to pay more attention to this and not just be like, well, they're gone. It doesn't matter. It absolutely yeah. matters. Everything yeah. Jared Kushner is doing Everything today matters. matters. Yeah. And um, yeah, so yeah. end rant. But uh, I this is just a whole... The thing about the like looking at members of the intelligence committee and yeah. their families, and if you look at the reporters that that we've gotten information that they were going after, people like Barbara Starr. Come on, mm-hmm. Barbara Starr has been a Pentagon correspondent since the dawn of man. Yeah, she is the most ethical, <laughs> and I mean that in the best possible way, right? Like, she's one of the most ethical reporters. She yeah. does not put information out that is a that is a threat to American national security that the Pentagon doesn't want out. Like. You know, she's very cautious about how she reports things, so it's not, uh, you know, exposing things that shouldn't be out uh, unnecessarily. And the fact that anybody's trying to investigate her and her, it's just like mad, it's madness. Like, it's absolute madness. So we need to return to this topic at some point. Let's do it. I think, I mean, I think there's a whole conversation to be had there. Um, Maybe we'll get John to come join us and we Mm -hmm. do that. Now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week, what stories are you following that might have flown under the radar um, and that may influence our politics in some unexpected way. Darren, I have two quick okay. ones. Uh, I mentioned uh, former U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack. You know, it was came out this week that he may be testifying um, um, before a committee that's investigating all these things that former President Trump and his administration were part of. And then the second thing I mentioned this uh, earlier is also is that you know this we can do this tour uh, again. Selfishly, it's in Georgia this week. I know that the Biden administration has a very robust deadline of trying to get as many people vaccinated by the July Fourth sort of um, holiday and. So I, I definitely am really waiting to see how the numbers are going up and the effectiveness of this tour. Okay. Molly? I, as a, as a daughter of a Western state coming from Idaho, um, will flag uh, in the category of the continuing, the East Coast isn't the West Coast, and Washington doesn't <laughs> understand what's happening in the Western states most of the time. Um, the crippling uh, drought that is mm. happening across the Western states this summer, it is worse than ever. Uh, and, and it's been many drought years in a row, but the severe extreme, I forget what the third extra category they've added, uh, a super severe extra extreme categories of drought that will most likely result in larger wildfires. Uh, and we know how much pressure that puts on local governments, federal governments, all of these responses. Um, but I think the layering of that with these huge sweeping demographic changes that have been happening in the Mountain West during COVID, people moving from California and Seattle mm. to ranches and totally up, uh, upending real estate markets and, and costs of living in Colorado and Wyoming and Idaho. Um, there's a lot going on in the Mountain West yeah. that is pitting political interest against each other that is directly tied to environment, climate, mm. Uh, demographic shifts, all of these things that we've been talking about in, in other ways today. Um, and I just think that story is so undercovered mm. by anybody except these like yeah. great little outlets like yeah. like High Country News that report from <laughs> the report from the Mountain West. Um, 
But there's a lot happening in these dynamics that is both fueling more extremism in Western states mm. uh, on the right because it's like, you know, it's, it's all these sort of freedom, you yeah. know, land use right, right. issues that we don't really talk about here in Washington. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then and then all of these environmental concerns, because, you know, who wants all that water? Everybody wants that water. Like yeah. when it comes down to it, like everybody wants to take a shower and water their lawn <sighs> and water their crops and water their horses. And there just isn't. And there, so we need to start talking about the stuff. There is an an upcoming politicology episode where we are going to talk about water being the next like natural resource that we have a war over. Yeah, right? absolutely. So we're going to get there. Uh, before I let you go and we pivot into our Politicology Plus segment, where can people find you on the internet, Theron? Um, at Twitter at Theron Johnson, T-H-A-R-O-N. And uh, Instagram is Theron L. Johnson. And Facebook is just Theron Johnson. Awesome. Molly? So I'm on Twitter at Molly McHugh, M-O-L-L-Y-M-C-K-E-W, weird spelling. Um, and my newsletter is greatpower.us. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you guys for being here. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's bonus segment and much more at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions for us, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. You can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'll see you in the next episode.